If you have your Bibles, whether it's paper or digital, I want you to get it out today and I want you to turn to the book of Philippians, which is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul, but it's a small book in the New Testament. So go ahead and table of contents, whatever you need to do, find that in Philippians chapter two, and we're gonna dive into that uh, in just just a moment. Um, We started this series a few weeks ago, and it's called Letters of Freedom. And we're taking all of September to stay in this one letter, this one book of Philippians. Uh, It was written by the Apostle Paul, again, to this group of believers, people who were who made this choice to follow after Christ in a culture that was hard and difficult. And they're from a city called Philippi. So they were Philippian. And so he wrote this letter back to them. And here's the crazy thing. This letter over and over talks about a couple of things. One is joy. Over and over and over again, he talks about the joy that we have and the joy that we can live and the joy that we can experience. And then he talks about freedom and the freedom that comes from that joy and the freedom that we have in Christ, all of these things that are so crucial to us. But, but he was in prison while he's writing this. Paul is literally captive, he's in chains, and he's writing to these people about the joy he has and the freedom that he has. And there's that part of us, we read that and think, how does that go together? Like prison and captivity with freedom and joy. Well, that's what we've been diving into to see how in the world that happens. Because even though this happened to Paul 2,000 years ago, there's something for us today. Because obviously you're here and you're not in prison, but many of us in here would say we've been held captive by something. Maybe a relationship that has been challenging or hard or maybe even abusive. Maybe there is conflict in it. Maybe we find ourselves in a financial situation or a spiritual condition and we just feel like we're stuck. So how do we find those places of of joy and freedom and contentment? And that's what Paul has to teach us in this. So we've been just kind of going through it kind of little by little. And so today we're going to start in verse 19 and go through 30 and look at uh, as Paul continues to write. Now he starts by by sharing in in this, this whole letter about how appreciative he is of these people and the impact that they've had on him and how he thanks God for them every day. What we're gonna look at today is he narrows it down to two specific people who've impacted his life, friends and the deepening relationship that they have. And so we're gonna look at that today. But as we start off, I want you to think for a moment of a friend that you have. Can you do that? Just someone in your life, you go, that's, that's a good friend of mine. So think about them. Some of you here today maybe find that hard to do because Maybe you feel a little isolated right now. Maybe you would even say, I don't even know if I have a friend right now. So I get it, that's a hard place to be. So what I want you to do is maybe think of someone you'd like to have as a friend. Maybe they're not there yet, but you'd say someone you work with or go to school with or someone in your neighborhood or, you know, your dorm or whatever it is. That's the kind of friend that I would like to have. So think about them for a moment. You got it? So here's what I want you to kind of process through. What is it about that person that seals the friendship for you? Does that make sense? What is it about the characteristics, um, maybe even say the character that they have, the qualities that they represent? What is it about them do they bring to friendship that you'd say, that's why this friendship works? And then what is it that you bring to the friendship on on your end of things? Because we all know that friendship is not a one-way street, right? 
Because we've all probably had someone in our life and it seems like we give and we give and we give and we give and after a while we go, I can't do this. It doesn't seem like a friendship. It just feels like you're being taken advantage of. But real friendship goes both ways. So what is it that they bring? What is it that you bring to the table? See, I can look back in my life over the years and see how God has brought people that have impacted me deeply. People who have brought kindness when maybe I didn't even feel I could be kind to myself or grace that they offered or speaking truth that helped shape me. And I've had the opportunity to do the same. And I think back over some of those friendships um, that I have and that I've had and I think of times when we have laughed together. I mean, some of the best memories in my life, some of those times that something will trigger and it just cracks you up because you remember that time with a friend and you know, whatever was going on and, and it was powerful. I've, I've cried with people as we've gone through really broken, uh, painful times, celebrated, challenged people as they have challenged me. We've got on each other's nerves, right? That's what friends do sometimes. Uh, there have been relationships that we've kind of drifted apart and relationships where we have kind of drifted back together. Because here's the thing, God designed us and made us to be in relationship. Now I know that word kind of gets co-opted in a romantic way. I just simply mean connection and friendship. God designed us to be in that way, to live in friendship. You were made that way. The grand architect who created and designed you did not create you simply to live in isolation or alone. In fact, you can go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, right? And God is doing his creation thing and he's spinning the world into, into motion and all of the, that we see and know. And he creates Adam. And then there's this moment when he looks at, at Adam and says, it's not good for him to be alone. And I think in my own mind, there's this little bit of humor in that where God looks at Adam and says, it is not good for the man to be alone. <laughs> Bad things happen when you leave men alone. So let's not leave him alone in this. And, and out of that sense of, of isolation and separateness, what do we see happen? God creates Eve. And in that is this beautiful, wonderful companionship and friendship that God designed for us because he doesn't want us to live in that isolated place. Now it's crazy, our culture all around us for all of history has understood this. Whether or not they recognized it was from God or not, they understood it. So you think of all the literature, uh, you, you come to nowadays and you think of television shows and what do they most often portray? Friendships, right? We have all kinds of shows about, about friendships. Classic shows like Friends, of course, that names it itself, but even like Seinfeld to, to New Girl or Big Bang Theory. I mean, you, you see all these different shows all the way back to, because this is going to hit everyone at some level, I Love Lucy, right? I mean, the, the Mertzes and the Ricardos, you know, and the friendship that they had and all that went along with that. And what happens is, is we see things like that. We experience shows or movies or literature, and here's what we say. Man, I wish I had friends like that. I wish I had friends like that. But it's not just about, you know, the status of our job or our career or our finances or our love life or the, the crazy things that happen in shows. There's something deeper. And so we say, okay, beyond what I see in the media, what does deep friendship look like? And how in the world does it continue to deepen? Because I would say most of us in this room want something more than just surface level friends, right? I mean, it's good to have some acquaintances, 
But at core, we want something more, at least with a few people. Because if I was to go onto your social media, or you were to go to mine and you go to Facebook or whatever it might be, you may have thousands of friends, right? Because I've done this with my kids. It's like, wow, how do you know this person? Well, I don't know them. They just asked to be my friend, right? And, and we have all these kind of friends now. In fact, that's probably the worst word that we can use because it's cheapened it. We want something more from that. But how do we get there? Because see, being a human is a matter of birth, but being a friend is a matter of choice. So how do we choose that? And then what does it mean to be that kind of friend? Not just an acquaintance, but deeper, a soul friend maybe even. Someone who's close enough to ride with us through the highs and lows of life, but also willing to speak truth and grace. So in this Philippians 2, Paul gives us two examples of friends. One he names is, is Timothy. And he talks about Timothy and the relationship and the friendship they have. And we're going to read it in just, just a moment and the closeness of that. In fact, later on in the New Testament, Paul actually writes two letters to this man named Timothy. You'll see him first and second Timothy and about some of the things that he's facing as a young leader in his life. The second guy that Paul begins to name in Philippians 2 is named Epaphroditus. And I know some of you are thinking, if I had a nickel for how many Epaphroditus's I know, uh, you know, some of you are teachers and you think, man, we have to, we have to actually get their, their last initial. You know, you have Epaphroditus N and Epaphroditus R. There's so many of them, right? Now, we've never heard that name, though some of you are considering it now for a child that's coming. So just, just think about it. So see when you read about him today. But these two guys represent something deep and powerful and actually something that Paul begins to cling to as a friend. So I'm going to start in verse 19, and I want you to follow along with me. So Paul says this, If the Lord is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. Then listen to these words. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what's going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. Meanwhile, here's number two, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, a co-worker, and a fellow soldier. And he was your messenger to help me in my time of need. I'm sending him because he's been longing to see you and he was very distressed that you heard he was ill. And he certainly was. In fact, he almost died, but God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So I'm all the more anxious to send him back to you for I know you will be glad to see him and then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him in the Lord's love and with great joy and give him the honor that people like him deserve for he risked his life for the work of Christ and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. So we're going to stop right there. But Paul begins to kind of take these two and say there's something in this that I want you to know. Now, Paul is, isn't giving us a specific teaching here about friendship and about deepening relationships and the kind of character and heart that it, that it takes. He isn't saying, now here's three steps to having deeper relationship. He's not doing that. Instead, what he does is he gives us real people and he gives us real situations, challenging, hard situations. And he says, this is what has happened in these friendships. And we, 
from a distance of, of, of time and, and, and place, we get to kind of observe and watch and learn and go, oh, that's what it looks like. And we get to learn by example. And I'll let you know, over all of this, it's not just about how can I be a better friend or how can others be better friends to me. It really comes down to deepening my relationship and my friendship with Jesus. The Gatina said it during uh, the worship time this morning, that, that passage where it says, greater love hath no man than this, that he would give up his life for his friend, right? And we know that's the picture of Jesus. And he is inviting us into this this deeper friendship with him. And out of that friendship, the grace of that friendship, it gets to be at work in me, but also through me to deepen my friendships and relationships with others around me. So I'm gonna give you five things this morning. I want you to write it down. If you're taking a close look at your note sheet, you may go, "Uh, Dave, you only have four things on there. I know, number five got cut off. So I'm gonna give it to you. I'll get to that point and you can kind of just, just write it in. But write this down for number one. With Jesus, I am able to lead with compassion. I'm able to lead with compassion. As we look through these, uh, these characteristics of these, these two men, I think what we're really beginning to see is God's desire for us. See, sometimes we want, I, I don't really have any friends and no one's doing that. It, it's about how we're going to live. And I tell you, when we begin to trust God in this, begin to lean close to Christ, you, you watch, watch God do a work in those around you. But I believe that God is looking for people who will put others before things and business. See, over the long haul, relationships, and I think we know this somewhere deep inside, but relationships are far more valuable than possessions or position. The people really matter. So exactly one week ago, uh, so last Saturday evening, a family in our church here uh, went through just a horrific tragedy and their 16-year-old son was killed in a freak accident. And they were devastated. And Friday, we had a chance to, right here in this room, do a memorial service for him. It was packed with students and friends and family. And he was in FFA, and there were FFA chapters from Denaire and Houston and different places. And those are hard, you know? And I keep looking at it and thinking and just going, no parent should ever have to bury their child. Just, just not, not how you, you imagine it or, or dream it or think about it. But this family is a family of faith and to watch them come together and they're hurting. Man, they're, they're struggling through the grief and the pain of that. Man, they were leaning on each other and they were holding on to each other, encouraging one another. Students were talking to students and we had a team that was here afterwards to pray with students. Kids came down, we were able to pray with them. They're just... They're just walking through this kind of numb and, and trying to figure it all out, right? I mean, we understand that. We get it. Can I tell you beneath that what was going on? Nobody was worried about what kind of car they drove. Nobody was worried about where their address is in the city and if it was in uh, a nice part or, or a different part. No, no one was thinking that. No one was worried about labels on their clothing. No one was worried about the position they had or promotion. Because when all of that gets 
put face to face with loss and people and family and those that matter, it just all pales in comparison because people matter. I remember hearing a song uh, years ago and I don't remember exactly how it went, but it had this line that all too often we find ourselves loving things and using people. But we need to get to a place where we begin to use things and love people. The Bible in 1 Corinthians 13, which is often called the love chapter, you've probably heard it at a wedding. Um, It's often tied to romance, but the Apostle Paul wrote that as well. Do you know he was not thinking about romance? He was not thinking about marriages. He was just thinking about the interactions that we have person to person. And he began to talk about the muscle and bone of what love really looked like. In fact, he said this, if I don't love, I'm nothing. And he finished that whole little part on love by saying this, now abides these three things, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Love. Let me tell you this, you can be a success in everything. You can have the right job and the right car and the right house and the right position. You can be a social media success. You can do all of those things. But Paul says this, if we miss out on love, We've missed it all. Our success is just simply a a fantasy because God desires us to be people of compassion. Look what it says in verses 20 and 21 in Philippians 2. He says, I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. Paul says Timothy is the one he knows that cares uh, about something outside of his life. Now, I'm going to be the first to tell you that being concerned about what's happening in you and around you is important. This is not I throw myself away. This is not I trash myself. It's not that. God wants you to understand your limits. He wants you to have boundaries. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to uh, have, you know, your your emotions that are are healthy and all those things. God desires all that. Jesus gave us the example of that, right? When crowds were pressing in, oftentimes he went away to be with the Father. Why? To be renewed and restored and reconnected. All those things are good. The problem is, is that we get so wrapped up and committed in our own little world that we forget the people around us. We forget what they're walking through and what they're facing. One translation of this verse is this, they are all wrapped up in their own affairs. There's a perfect example of this in Luke chapter 10. We're not going to turn there, but it's the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The guy walking down the road. Again, Jesus was telling a story, not a true story, an example. But a guy's walking down the road and he gets mugged and he's laying there on the side of the road, beaten, dying. And here come the religious leaders. And what do they do? I just can't. I don't have time. If I get caught up in this, I'm going to get stuck. You know, all, for whatever the reasons. And they walk on by. And then here comes the Samaritan, the one guy who shouldn't stop because of the racial issues, because of the racism that's happened between the Samaritans and the Jews. He should have walked on by, probably gone over and kicked the guy one more time. It was one of those kinds of things. And what does he do? He stops and he cares for him. He provides kind of first aid and he puts him in his transportation, which was a donkey, and he puts him on that. And what does he do? He takes him to, translations say like a hotel, but it wasn't that. It was a place where you could recuperate. It was a place of 
of care. And, and so he takes him there in this place and, and literally kind of pulls out, I shouldn't say the word literally because it wasn't that, pulls out kind of the, for us, what would be a credit card and just said, take care of all of his needs. I'll cover it all. And I read that and think, man, would I do that for a stranger? Would you do that for a stranger? And we'd probably go, if, if we're honest, maybe. It kind of depends, you know, on the situation and who they are and what's going on. We, we don't know. We, can, we can't just give a blanket answer because there, there's too many variables, right? That's a tough one. So I'll ask you even a tougher question. Would you do it for a friend? See, we struggle with the stranger, but the truth is sometimes we're so tied up in all of our stuff, we can't even stop and give comfort and aid and kindness to a friend. Compassion is what Christ wants to to birth and to grow and to deepen in us. And by the way, this is not a, I'm gonna be compassionate, I'm gonna be kind, I'm gonna be loving, I gotta have to somehow produce it and work in it. It's not that. Our compassion and our love and our strength is with Jesus. It's his compassion that begins to flourish and flow in me and then flow through me to those around me. It's with Jesus that this is possible. Write this down for number two. With Jesus, I am able to walk with integrity. God is looking for people who put character first. Rather than just simply flow with the crowd and flow with culture, they're not afraid to be different from what's around them and to simply stand strong. Look at verse 22. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. We're going to come back to that word proved. Like a son with his father, he has helped me in preaching the good news. Timothy has proved himself. Now here's the thing. Proved in the Greek translated literally means tested character. Now the word we use for tested character is integrity. That there is what's inside of me matching up with how I'm living and what's outside of me. That what God is doing is here begins to flow out in how I live. In fact, do you know the name Timothy means he honors God? That's what his name means. And so Timothy throughout his life was someone not perfect, but who's someone who chose not to give in to pressure or culture, but instead to live honorably and faithfully before the Lord, to live a life of integrity. And it only is possible because of what Christ has done in us. Now there's a statement and you've heard before, it's almost cliche, but if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. You ever heard that? And I know it, it's a little bit cliche, but you realize there's some truth to that? And the question is, what are you willing to stand for in life? What is it that has become a conviction to you that you can't be bought at any price? You can't be moved from that. That we become committed to the values that are consistent with our beliefs and our convictions that ultimately come from God's own word. These are the things that we build our lives on. And the struggle is, is that there, there, there are so many people who are half committed to things. And I don't mean to burst your bubble, but half of a commitment is not a commitment. It's simply a whim. It's, it works when we want it to work, but when it doesn't, we, we give it up. But what about the, the strong convictions, the character, the integrity that says, I am going to to follow after God. I'm gonna choose his way rather than my own. Proverbs 10 says this, people with integrity have firm footing, but those who follow crooked paths will slip and fall. See, a nice personality will make a great first impression, 
But making a difference over the long haul is built on character, not on image, not on externals. The person of integrity will not be afraid that they're going to be found out, that someone's going to open their phone or their computer or look deeper into their life and discover the discrepancies. Again, not perfection, but honor and integrity. And the question we all have to ask ourselves is, is my private life consistent with my public image, with what I show everyone else? And if it's not, we are building up a false self, a phony me. It, it's looking good and posing for everyone out there, but the real me insta, inside stays hidden. And God is calling us to something deeper in our friendship with him and ultimately our friendship with others to be people of integrity. Write this for number three. With Jesus, we can be a family together. A family together. God's looking for people who are willing to work together arm in arm to build one another up and to build God's kingdom. I think Paul recognized that even he would, would see God's kingdom move forward more and more if, if he was partnering with others. That's why you see Timothy and Epaphroditus. That's why you see communities that he never even went back to because he left it in God's hands. But together, they were this body of Christ. They were this kingdom that was moving forward. Look what it says in verse 25. Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. And he names three things. He's a true brother, a faithful worker, and a courageous soldier. And he was a, your messenger to help me in my need. He, did, he defines this cooperation, this, this family, in three terms, three relationships, brother, worker, and soldier. And I think those same three things apply really to us today. So I want you to write these down. Three things about this, this life together that we have. First is this, it's a family to join. That we're related. Did you know that? I've said that to people before and they go, yeah, 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 but, but we're, not, we're not blood relatives. Can I tell you that's absolutely what we are? But it's not our blood. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross that unites us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you know that Paul actually uses the phrase brother 130 some times in the New Testament? And that, and by the way, that's not just a male-female thing. That was just his description of that. But really it is a brother and sister. We are family together in Christ. And here's what's even more amazing. And it's probably true of your family too. You can be family and have each other's back and stand strong together, even though you don't always agree on all the same things, right? Right? And it's the same thing in the body of Christ. So when it comes here, there's a phrase that we use sometimes. It's like we don't have to see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. And when we talk about our statement of faith and the core beliefs that we have here, which, by the way, you can find online, you'll see that kind of statement of faith that we hold to that makes us, that kind of holds us together as Christ followers. And on those things, we say, we don't have a lot of disagreement on that. In fact, we don't really have any disagreement at all. It's a historical statement of faith. Like, this is what it is. It's about who God is and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and who the church is and what does it mean to, to find salvation in Christ? What is the Bible? All these things that we say, those are our core things. And we're together on those. But then there are other things that we call our non-essentials. That we say, yes, we believe that, but there's different ways of seeing that play out. Let me give you an example. So next week, we're going to have baptisms right here on this. We're going to have this little pool thing right here. And people are going to come in, and I'm going to stand next to them, and they're going to tell their story. 
And then I'm gonna take them by the hand and I'm gonna say, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then I'm gonna put them underneath the water, come up, you guys are gonna cheer and go crazy. If you haven't been to one, you gotta be here. It's just gonna be, it's amazing. We're gonna do that. And so that is just kind of how, how we baptize. Now I have friends who are in ministry, who are followers of Christ, and they don't put under the water, they pour water over someone. That's how they do it. They have a tradition of that. For some, I know, like we, we like lay someone backwards down. I know some people that I know, they're pastors, and they baptize forward, you know, so they have the person go into the water like that. I, I know someone, and in their faith tradition, they do this. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son <laughs> and the Holy Spirit. And one more for good luck, you know. Now, here, here's the question. Who's right? Who's right? Here's my answer. Who cares? Right? See, the Bible doesn't give us this. Now, when you baptize someone, you do, you know, X, Y, and Z. It tells us to baptize. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them all these things that I've commanded you. And then Jesus gives us his promise. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. He said, do this. But he didn't say, oh, 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 oh. But you got to make sure you take the hand like this and make sure they go forward. But he didn't give us those instructions. Why? Because I think those are non-essentials. Baptism is essential. How we do it is less essential. And in a family, we may not always see eye to eye on some of these non-essential things, but to the core things of what makes us followers of Christ, we bind together, not just in one church, but in churches throughout our community, churches throughout the world. God is doing something among us, and he's invited us to join a family. Now, the second thing he says is that Epaphroditus is a faithful worker, so we have a job to do. Write that down. We have a job to do. We have the same quest, the same task. We have the great commission, which is what I just quoted to you. We are to serve together and work together, not independently. Then he says this about Epaphroditus. He is a soldier, which really leads us to this. Write it down. We have a battle to fight. Because when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you became an enemy of the devil. And Jesus even said that we have this enemy, Satan, the devil, who's like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And he says this, his purpose, his desire, his passion, his goal is to steal and to kill and destroy. So you following Christ puts you in his sights. Imagine facing a war and a battle by yourself. God didn't design you to do that. That's why we protect and guard. We stand back to back to hold each other to not do it alone. How many of us know that life is a battle, right? But you don't have to go through it alone because there's incredible power in, in unity and friendship and connections. Family changes the world. In the book of Judges, this one scene unfolds during this battle. It says, so all the people of Israel got together and united as one person against the city. Unity is powerful. And I'll tell you this, when the people in the church are unified for one task, for God's glory, nothing can stop what God wants to accomplish in us and through us together. Write this down for four. With Jesus, I am able to be deeply committed. I believe God's looking for people who will put the cause of Christ before their own comfort. Here's what Paul says in verses 25 through 27. 
We're back in Philippians 2. About Epaphrodites, he says, he was your messenger to help me in my need. Now I am sending him home again, for he's been longing to see you. And he was distressed that you heard he was ill. And he was. In fact, he almost died. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have such unbearable sorrow. Now you remember the scenario, right? Paul's in prison. He's in chains in Rome. The people of Philippi took up an offering to send to Paul to help with some of his expenses. It's weird for us. People go to prison and everything's taken care of. But for them, when you went into prison, you had to reach out to your family and friends and anyone who could supply you with things or you're just on your own. Prison was not a cakewalk. It was brutal. And so they're collecting this offering to help Paul's expenses, just even for clothing and what he had to eat and those things. Now, here's the thing. Philippi to Rome is about 800 miles, six weeks of travel just to get there. And Epaphroditus, who was from Philippi, said, I'll take it. I'll go. I'll do the journey. Remember now, if he doesn't stay in Rome, he's got 12 weeks, 12 weeks back and forth, rough terrain just to get there. And he says, I'll do it. I'll take it. And somewhere along the line, we don't know the details, he caught a disease or an infection or some physical issue and it almost took his life. But here's the thing, he persists in spite of his pain. When he started, he said, I'm gonna get to Paul. And he did, even though he almost died. That's the kind of commitment that I think God wants to build in me. I'm not going to give up. So I've shared this before, but um, years ago I did a triathlon and do not think Ironman triathlon. Think way shorter. It's called a sprint triathlon. It's like much smaller. You know, you kind of do it in an hour or so. It's just kind of real, real, kind of the first step into that. So I wanted to do it. So I, I had a bike that I rode. I did some running, but the swimming, I knew how to swim, but I'd never done any open water swimming. Like this would be on a big lake. And so I would go with a couple of friends. We'd go up to Modesto Reservoir like two days a week, and we'd swim early in the morning across some of the areas just out in the lake. And and so it's like, I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Uh, what I wasn't ready for was a thousand other people trying to swim over the top of me while I'm swimming. It's, like, you know, it's just like crazy. And here's the crazy thing about swimming that's different from everything else. Because we had to swim a quarter mile out to this big buoy and then back. See, when you're riding your bike or you're running, I mean, you could get two miles in. You could get a hundred yards in and go, I don't want to do this anymore. Forget. You can just get off your bike and walk it back. You can just stop the run and go, I don't know why I signed up for this stupid thing. I shouldn't have done it and do that. But swimming, like when you're out there, you can't just go, I'm done. Forget that. I do not want to do this anymore. I mean, you're committed. You're in all the way. There's just no halves in this. And, and God is calling us to, to look and go, hey, I know that sometimes you start things, you don't finish. But commitment if you will trust in me, we'll take you all the way to the end. All the way to the end. Not just words, but actions. James 2.17 says in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Here's the problem. We choose the areas where we're going to be committed and involved. Maybe you've chosen to be committed and aggressive in the arena of work. And you take a lead at work. But you come home and you hide and you abdicate your involvement. Maybe you've become really active in the community, but you become passive spiritually. I want you to hear this. 
Spiritual awakenings occur when people become participants, not spectators. And I'm not talking just about participating in church and attendance. This is, not, this is about participating in a deepening relationship with Christ. And we stop standing on the sidelines and we say, I am all in. Things begin to change. What's in here begins to wake up. All right, number five. It's not on your sheet, but write it down at the bottom, okay? With Jesus, I am able to be faithful and courageous. With Jesus, I'm able to be faithful and courageous. I believe God is looking for people of courage who are willing to risk whatever it takes for the kingdom of God, who are willing to serve him no matter what. Look at verses 29 and 30. Welcome him, this is about Epaphroditus, with Christian love and with great joy. And be sure to honor people like him. Here it is. For he risked his life for the work of Christ. And he was at the point of death while trying to do for me the things that you couldn't do because you were far away. That word in there that he, he risked his life, in, in the Greek, it, it's, a, it's a specific term and it's about kind of like hazarding something, putting something on the line. And it's literally a gambling term. God used a, a term that they would have understood, oh, that, that's when you're rolling the dice. You know, when you, when you put it all on a certain number or you put it on a certain outcome and then you, you know, you're looking for a certain number. That's the term he uses in that. That Epaphroditus literally risks his life not for a bet, not for some reward like that, but for the kingdom of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He almost died so that he could make a difference for the kingdom. That is all in. That's putting it all on the line. Here's one of my fears for me, is that in these next seasons of life, that I would choose just to settle, to just phone it in, to get by, to exist, to just go through the motions. It's one of my fears. And then I would look back and go, oh, what was I so afraid of? What was I so afraid of? That somehow God would let me down? That I wouldn't be all in for him? I don't want to live with that kind of regret. And one of my fears for a new life is that we would simply become a nice church service. And maybe you discuss it a little bit afterwards. But we come and we talk about things that are real nice and we make no deeper surrender or commitment to Christ. We don't love one another or encourage one another anymore. And we completely forget that we live in a world that's desperate for good news. That we would just be nice. Paul says in Romans 12 to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Do we have the faith to sacrifice? To fully live lives of integrity? Do we have a faith that will take the risk to trust God? Your Bible, my Bible is filled with people who put it all on the line and most of them messed it up. <laughs> most of them failed at some point. And then, you know what most of them did? They picked it back up again and they said, God, sorry about that. Forgive us for that but we're putting our trust in you and we're gonna follow after you. Do we have the faith to do that? Jesus said this, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, 
you will find true life. I think God is looking for people of compassion, integrity, unity, commitment, courage. I think one of the most tragic sentences in this whole passage we read today is where Paul says of Timothy, I have no one else like him. A part of me is like, yay, at least you have Timothy. And the other part is like, why aren't there more Timothys? Why aren't there more people of, of faith and integrity and, and, and unity and life and courage out there? What, where are they? And Timothy and Epaphroditus were not superstars or heroes. They were ordinary guys. Yet their friendship, commitment, and faith changed the landscape. But it wasn't something that they had to manufacture or do enough to-do lists or produce, produce, produce. It wasn't that. It came through Jesus. The greatest friend, the one who gave up his life for us. And it was his grace providing for us. And it's his grace that we get to live out in friendship and community together. It all comes down to his grace. It's the only reason we're here. And I wonder what this will look like for you moving forward. To dive deeper into this grace of the one who gave all for us. And as that grace begins to overflow in you, to watch it extend to the friendships in your life. We were designed to do this together. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we love you and we thank you that you have given your all for us. You put it all on the line. And Lord, today, as we take a step of courage and commitment and faith, we put it all on the line as well. And yet, for us, truly, there is no risk because you are faithful and you are good and you've got us. So Father, in these days ahead, I pray that we would just dive deep in you. That we would allow your good work and your strength to come full circle in us. We love you, in Jesus' name, amen.